You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. We have saved the best seats in the house right for you. So just come on. If this is, No, I'm kidding. You, you, you don't move. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. You've come to a group of people that are committed to following Jesus. That's, that's what we're about. We're not the best at it. We're still learning our way. And that's why we need you to join us in this journey of following Jesus. But we're so glad that you're here. And if, and if you have the best seat in the house and you're watching us online, enjoy that comfortable seat. We, we know that you've got a recliner. We're okay with that because we're here, but we're glad that you're here as well. Well, on that best seat in the house, uh, are you getting excited that the writers are now writing again and that your new shows are coming and that you'll be able to recline and watch some of your new shows? Well, checking and seeing when they're going to come on or when they're going to come out. Okay, so quick question on the front end. How many of you, raise your hand, if you have a brother or a sister? Okay, so most of you, but probably others of you have someone that acts like that in your life, a brother or a sister. So, my question is, would you be comfortable with your brother or sister writing your biography? <laughs> Pretty straight up answer over here. You just don't know what might come into that, right? Um, I, I think I'd be okay with my sister writing my biography. I, I, I don't know what else she would put in there. I think I'm comfortable because I've seen my mom lately. I saw her this weekend. And she, her brother, is a preacher. He's been preaching for 50 years in the same church. And so what does my mom do but contact a Christian newspaper, the Christian Chronicle, and tell them about him. And they did a story about him that came out just last week. Now, I think I'd feel safe with my mom writing my biography. Now, I bring that up because what I'm doing is having so much fun looking at these words from Jesus' brother James. Now, James isn't writing a biography about Jesus, his brother. He's not like one of the gospel writers. He's writing a letter, but he's definitely using his brother's material. And what I love about James is that I think he's like, I don't know, the best script writer in the New Testament. I mean, the images that James paints are vivid. They're some of the most famous in all the New Testament. He, he's much better than Paul. I mean, Paul's kind of got that professor, that rabbi thing going on. James is a little bit more earthy, a little bit more down to earth. And, and no, he, he, he might not be able to write a pure Hollywood script, but what he does is quite vivid and memorable. And so what I want to do is to read you one of his more memorable scripts from James chapter 2. And I want you to keep your seat today. You've got the best seat in the house, so just enjoy this, this, this story from James. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, here, here, have a seat here, please, while to the other one who is poor, you say, stand over there. Sit over here by my feet on the floor. 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has God not chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It's not the, is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that is, was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one particular point has become accountable to the whole law. For if the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who shows no mercy, for mercy triumphs over judgment. Vivid image, vivid image. A person in the first century coming into the assembly with gold rings and excellent clothing. Most likely, this excellent clothing probably was a white toga, which might have even referenced perhaps a candidate in town promoting their candidacy for a political office. So if this person comes in, and, and you know what it's like, you've got these glamorous people that show up and you're like, okay, did you really mean to church? You come to church? I, I, I don't, does it fit? I mean, or, or you, have you ever had this experience where you see someone and you just kind of enter their soft filtered aura? You know what I mean? Just this real gentle smell and you're in their circle and their orb are like, wow, this person is something else. And it's kind of like this, this woman or this man, this man in a toga or this woman in purple, which was a very wealthy color in the first century, comes in and it's like they thought it was a Beverly Hills shop or something and, and they're about to turn around and leave. You know, they, they thought it was an Amex gold only store and here they are and they're at church. And we go, oh, 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 wait, 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 my love. No, we've been waiting for you. We've, we've saved the best seat. We can finally begin things now. Come up and sit here. Let people bask in your glory. They're going to want to take selfies with you, of course, if you permit it. And may I get you a drink? And then you've got the contrast of someone else who comes in with maybe a different aroma, a different circle or orb, you know, the kind of orb, now be, bear with me, going to the pharmacy that doesn't have soap or shampoo or deodorant or tampons, who doesn't have shaving cream, cannot create male hygiene or female hygiene very well, and they, their orb surrounds you. And the response is, well, sit here at the floor sit by my feet. It is so very vivid and plain what James paints. I mean, it's the kind of thing that's duplicated all over the place. You've probably seen a teenage drama sketch, if you've been around churches, where this scene gets played out in some way. 
Or maybe this year you saw the movie The Jesus Revolution, which talks about the hippie re- uh, movement, especially, especially the Jesus people who are coming to church and they're seeking Jesus, but they just look a lot different than what people look like in church in the 1960s. It's a great movie. It's worth watching. But this is a scene that James paints that gets duplicated, copied, ripped off, and used everywhere. And Jane, James, putting this in 3D, jumps into our faces and gets right in our faces and questions us. Questions us by looking us in the eye and saying, you don't really have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if you show partiality. That's the big right hook that he throws right at us in the very first verse of this passage. You don't really believe if you show partiality. And our our jaws just kind of, we're absorbing that blow and feeling the reverberations. Possibly you can even see that in freeze frame of just getting clocked by James. And we step back and we think, well, wait a second. We notice things. I mean, there are some people that have their stuff together and others who don't. Brady, is it so wrong to actually notice that? To notice that someone has it together and others do not? Is that that being partial? The problem is not noticing. The problem is not observing that people are different from one another. We're all very different. The problem is when you notice and then you act based upon what you see, and treat people in a different way. Well, we're absorbing that blow, and James comes and gives us a body blow, another jarring hit. Not only is he questioning our belief, but he pushes us to the extreme by saying, well, God has elected the poor. He's chosen the poor. Did he really say that? He's chosen the poor to be rich in faith. Yeah, that's what he said. Election. You know, a lot of Christians get all hung up on election. A limited view of election. All these various views of election. Am I in the elect or not? And even if you don't buy into those thoughts, sometimes we doubt our own salvation. Am I inside of the saved group or am I not? Well, you know what I never find? I never find those people that believe in those views of election coming to this passage as the perfect way to hedge their bet. I mean, it's what James says. God has elected the poor. Well, here is your ticket in. What if you were to choose the life of poverty to take it on for you? And that way you wouldn't have to worry about your salvation or worry about whether or not you're in the elect because you would have this standard where you could say, hey, I am among the chosen that God has chosen. And when you look closely, God has chosen those who are poor, who are lovers of God. The final big blow, I think, comes as a left hook. The left hook is that there are also those who have inherited the kingdom of promise to those who love God. So they're not just at a table for a photo op with the wealthy people where you get that person who looks a little different, different race, different background. They're right there at the table. Let's do a photo for the picture. I know they don't smell very well, so just hold your breath. Snap, we got the picture. It's over. They can leave the table. 
No, no, no. They're sitting at the table because they're heirs. They're on the will. They're a part of the promise. They're included on the inside. Now, lest you think that I'm saying that poor or poverty or lowliness is some kind of a ticket in, or if you think, hey, you know, this is the way I get in. I don't like God, don't love God, don't believe in God, and I'm blaming him for everything. The qualifier that James gives is that it's those who love God. Lovers of God. Those that seek out God. They're down on their luck. They've had difficult things happen, but they are sticking in. They are pursuing. They're not blaming their father. They're seeking their father and letting him to show up. Well, I look at a scene like that, and I think James is pretty humorous, pretty funny. I'd like to see him back at his writer's desk. I'd like to have him work up some more scripts because I think that he's giving us insight that teaches us about our own lives and really holds up the mirror for us. Now, there is a backstory. There's a backstory to what's going on in this particular group of people, and James has been hinting at it the whole way. And the backstory is this that this is a small, messianic Christian community. They're Jewish. They, they look like Jews. They wear the same prayer shawls. They're, at this point in their life, eating the same foods, smelling the same way. The difference is that they confess Jesus as Christ. Now, this group of people is oppressed. There's some wealthy people outside of the community that are providing some kind of difficulty. And if, if you've been watching through the whole chapter one, he's been encouraging them not to be invoked to violence, not to raise up arms and throw off their oppressors, and not to use even violent rhetoric. He's encouraging them to be calm, to endure, to trust God as the one who is Lord and King and Master. So with this group of people, I know that we have you know, no, no connection to this, no idea of a time when the poor might prefer the rich, but it's something of a double-minded move where even though they're oppressed by the wealthy, they're giving preference to the wealthy when they show up in their Beverly Hills best. Now, I know this doesn't make any sense today. We don't have wealthy people or billionaires saying, I'm oppressed. I mean, do we take seriously any billionaire that says, I'm oppressed? Do we take any rich person behind the desk who's breaking laws and believe them that they really should be above the law, that we better watch out because if, we're, if their rights are being violated, so will our rights be violated. Can we take seriously wealthy people who don't know what it's like to work, let alone what it's like to train for work, or to get out there and try to get a job and then try to hang on to that job and work the grind of that job? Do we trust them to try to get us worried and anxious about their position being threatened and their status being questioned? It's kind of hard for us to get too worried or worked up about it because we all fall under the same rules. Here, this group of people is in that same kind of double-minded move of, oh, yes, the rich are coming in. Let's welcome them when in fact it's the rich that are dragging them into court. It's the rich that are oppressing them. Okay, well here we draw a breath. Brady's been talking a lot, but he hasn't been telling you what he's talking about. 
I've held back what this first point of three principles is that I want you to catch from James. And the first principle comes from verse 1. It's that favoritism is not in line with being a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're showing preference for the rich or even for the poor, that kind of partiality does not align with the kind of kingdom that God is building. That's the first principle that James leads with with all of these punches. The second principle is one that is the center one. It's the foundation. It's the fundamental one. In verse 8, you really do well if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This second point invites us into the kingly law, the royal law. The, the law that sounds kind of familiar to us, of loving your neighbor as yourself. James is quoting his brother Jesus, who's quoting Deuteronomy, the words of Moses, way back when. And yet Jesus is doing it in a new way. He's pulling together a couple of things. For sure, the Shema prayer that every Jew prayed in the morning and that they prayed in the evening and whenever they go out the exit of any door of asserting the oneness of God and that we should love God above all. That is very familiar. That is common. We know that one. But Jesus does something that no one else did. From the point that the boring book of Leviticus was written until the first century, he pulls together these two. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that we should love our neighbor as ourself. And so James is borrowing it, and he's pointing us to this kingly rule, this royal law of how we can live like kings by loving our neighbor and loving God. Now, you'll have to forgive me, but I think this is important. This, these words that were on the lips of Jesus are throughout the Gospels. They pop up on Jesus' lips. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 27, there's a lawyer that steps forward and asks Jesus, Hey Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of all? And what does Jesus say? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty familiar. In Mark chapter 12, same type scenario. This time it's a scribe that steps forward and says to Jesus, What's the first commandment of all? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Same thing happens in the Gospel of Luke. So we've got three of them so far. In Luke 10, again, it's a lawyer. This time the lawyer says, Jesus, how do I have eternal life? Real life. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. We still got one more gospel. You're, you're doing well to endure me of quoting these out. Got Bryce yawning, but yes, you're, you're enduring. In John chapter 15, verse 12, and John 13, 34, Jesus says, love, the Lord, or love one another just as I have loved you. This work that Jesus is doing of pulling together these commands is very central to Christianity. It's about, about the most central teaching that we have. And we know it, right? I mean, you've seen it on a billboard, probably in town. You've seen it on a church website, including ours. Love God, love others as yourself. 
It is at the core of what the mission is of any church. Paul talks about it in Romans 13, verse 9. And yet Paul brings up the first one about loving others. Also in Galatians 5, verse 14. Even Peter gets in on this. All of them are quoting this, but James does something unique. Just like his brother, he does both of them. Love God and love others. The love of God comes in verse two, verse, or verse 5 of chapter 2, and the love others comes here in verse 8. All right, so what, what are we getting at? What we're getting at is this common practice that loving our neighbors is the way that we show that we're loving God. It's the proof. It is this way that we can live like kings by living in the way that God has lived among us. Well, that's the center principle. It's core. Loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God. The, the third one, the final one, is really more of a summary one. It's worded differently, but it helps wrap all of them together. And it's in verse 13, the final verse that I read to you today. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you want to know how God wins the day, God wins the day by showing mercy to us, to all of us as human beings. And the only time that God is pulling out judgment, including in this verse, is whenever we are not merciful. That God will show no mercy to those who choose not to be merciful. This idea of mercy is something that Jesus is constantly bringing us into school. You know, religious people like me, well-trained religious people like me, Pharisees and scribes. He likes to whip, you know, open up a can on us. And one of the things that he says when the Pharisees are raising a bunch of questions of him in Matthew 9 is, okay, go learn what this is. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Really? He just gave them homework? Yeah, he does it in Matthew 12, too. Go learn mercy. So you can picture what they probably do. They run off to their studies and they open up. Let me get the dictionary out. Mercy, compassion, and kindness. And is that what Jesus is meaning? Go do a research project on mercy? To, to figure out that mercy means forgiving other people? And being kind and compassionate? No, he's saying go and do it. Go and live it. Like he says in verse 12, to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by this law of liberty. Because we're all lawbreakers. You break one law, you're breaking the whole law. And what has to lead the way is us showing mercy to others. Well, it comes to us. It comes to us in the how. Of how we're supposed to do this. To not just be a learner, but to be a doer. To not just speak about these things, but to act on them. And it can be challenging. Because you can write the movie script for the blind side, but then you still have to deal with the messiness of have you really lived faithfully in that relationship. Some of you may know about that famous movie, the football movie, The Blind Side. Now there's a whole big lawsuit. We can't figure out who's wrong and who's right. But as Christians, we have to, in our own life, and our practice with others, not just write a script about it, but actually live it in our own lives. 
Again, I can't see into everyone's intentions. During this writer's strike, a lot of people got press, but one that didn't get a ton of press was Drew Carey. We know Drew Carey from Whose Line Is It Anyway, from The Price Is Right, lots of comedy shows. Well, Drew Carey, being one who's out in front of people, knows the importance of writers, and so he promised to pay to buy meals for writers all during the strike, which he's been doing since May. There's two restaurants that any writer could go to, and he would pick up the tab, and he's done that for the duration of this strike. Again, I can't read in. I'm not trying to assign beautiful motives to Drew Carey or endorse anything about him. I'm just getting us to think about how do we move out of mercy as a research project and love as being a research project to being something that we actually do. Because I think it's what people love about Jesus. That he gave religious people a hard time, and in his practice, Jesus bent over backwards to show mercy and love to everyone. And you say, well, Brady, I didn't have a parent that showed me how to be loving and forgiving. I know, I get it. But we have Jesus. We have Jesus as our example of compassion and kindness and forgiveness. One that will show us what mercy looks like. And so we enter into this life of being livers of this kingly law. Those that embody it and practice it. We're not wanting to be guided by favoritism. If we use partiality and favoritism, then our belief gets drawn into question by James, who grabs us by the collar. If we will push ourselves to this royal law that Jesus spoke about, loving God and loving neighbors, then it becomes easy to live the third thing that we talked about, of mercy triumphing over judgment. It's the action of our lives, both in public and in private, that really tells us and others who we are. It's not something that we can write about. It needs to be something that we also show and exemplify in our life. And I'm challenging you through these powerful words of Jesus, through James, just like I'm challenging myself, of how we can live this kingly rule, this kingly law in our own lives. It's going to mean maybe this week we're paying more attention to who our neighbor is, to how we treat people. Is it, is it equal? Is it fair? Is it impartial? Do we get people off or put people on the hook based upon what our relationship is? That's what our challenge is this week, to hear Jesus' homework. Go learn what mercy looks like. Let's pray. Eternal God, giver of life, we want our breath to be expended in serving and worshiping and following you. And that doesn't just take place here on a Sunday, but we know it takes place in our everyday life. So, God, would you come alongside of us? We're trying to follow your son, Jesus. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you will help make us kings. Help us live like this kingly law that was given to us long ago through Moses, through Leviticus, through the words of Jesus, and then repeated by James, that we might love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. God, thank you for the power that you give us through the Holy Spirit. And we pray this through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.